1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, as we prepare to walk through these two verses, these two sentences, that are just so packed with import and theological meaning. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would focus our attention upon your word, that you would help us and enable us to connect the dots, so to speak. Father, I pray for myself that you would, that you would, that it would please you to speak through me this morning, that you would guide my thoughts, that you would guide my words. And I pray, Lord God, that you would enable me to be faithful to Scripture and to say those things which are only honoring and glorifying to you and edifying to the saints. Lord, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the book of Exodus, the book that I recently walked through with my midweek life group Bible study thoroughly enjoyed, we read about the I mean, that whole book primarily is about God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, right? That's how the book begins, um, that God delivers them out of Egypt through uh, many spectacular miracles. Of course, the greatest of those is the parting of the Red Sea. But then they spend a year, once they cross the Red Sea... Many do not realize that that entire book is just one year. They spend a year sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're not wandering at this point. Throughout the book of Exodus, they're not going anywhere. They are sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they are receiving the law from God via Moses. They are receiving the law. They are receiving instructions uh, much of the book of Exodus has to do with them in receiving instructions for the building of the tabernacle, the fabric, the poles, the tabernacle furnishings, the Ark of the Covenant, and also the priestly garments, what that is going to look like. 
And that is about one-third of the book, right in the middle of it. And then the last third of the book is them then building it, actually putting it together. So first, the, uh, the first third is the deliverance. The second third is all of the instructions. And then the final third is them actually building all of the temple furnishings, building the tabernacle, putting together all of the priestly garments, and then when you get to the very end of the book, literally the last few verses of the last chapter, Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 to 34, we see then that they finally erect the tabernacle. It's all done. They've made it all. They put it all together, and we're told as soon as they put it all together, then the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was no longer able to enter into the tabernacle. He was no longer able to enter into the presence of God. Which is an amazing statement because throughout the book of Exodus, Moses is in the presence of God. He goes into what is called the tent of meeting. And there he would meet with God and he would talk with God face to face as they are building the tabernacle. But then once the tabernacle is complete, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and Moses is no longer allowed to enter into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. Why is that? Well, because oftentimes, like when a builder is building a home, as the home is being built, he's able to come and go freely. He stops at the construction site and and he walks in and he walks out and as the walls are going up and as they're finishing it off he goes in and out whenever he wants as the building is being completed but once it is complete and he hands those keys to the owner he no longer has the right to go into that house whenever he wants because the home has been occupied by the owner the tabernacle and later the temple of Solomon was considered to be not only by the people of Israel, but by God himself, his home. The tabernacle, the temple was the dwelling place of God. Moses no longer had a right to come in and out of that tabernacle whenever he saw fit. But not only was it the dwelling place of their God, it was the throne room of their king because God was their king. They understood that. It's not that they were never supposed to have a human king, but even when they had a human king that God appointed himself, such as David, it was always understood that David was simply the puppet king. God was their one true king. He simply ruled through David and through Solomon and all of the other legitimate kings that came through the line of David. God was their king, and the tabernacle was his throne room, and the Ark of the Covenant was considered to be the very throne of God. We see that in various places. I'm going to give you a couple of texts. You can turn with me or simply write them down. Numbers chapter 7, for example, verse 89, we read this. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. God spoke to him 
from the mercy seat that was seated on top of the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Here the Israelites go to war with the Philistines, and of course they are being defeated, and they can't figure out what is going wrong. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, they get this brainiac idea, which proved to be a horrible idea. But it says, And when the people came to the camp, and the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, listen, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Psalm 99, verse 1. And the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble, He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The people of Israel understood because God had made it clear to them. I am your king. The temple is my throne room. The ark of the covenant is my throne, which is why the high priest was only permitted to go into the holy of holies once a year, because nobody has the right to enter into the throne room of the king at will. You enter into the presence of the king at his beckoning and at his invitation. But because of their disobedience, because of the Israelites' constant disobedience and their desire to constantly worship Baal, and to live in ways that were in defiance of their king, God eventually destroys the temple. First by destroying the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 by the Assyrians. But then in 586, he uses the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. He extends grace to the southern kingdom simply because that is the tribe of David. But nonetheless the people of Israel learn a difficult lesson and that God's patience is not infinite. That's not to say that God will forsake his promises to his covenant people. He never will. But when God's people consistently live in disobedience and when they defile the temple of God over and over again, there comes a point when God says to them, I have had enough. And he destroys the temple in 586 B.C. Interestingly enough, these are, this is during the same time period that the prophet Ezekiel is prophesying and ministering. He ministers from about 590 to 570 B.C. The temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 10, Ezekiel is given a vision, a horrible vision, where he sees the temple in this vision, and he sees the glory of the Lord depart from the temple. God is no longer with us. Eventually, the Jews do return, and they rebuild the temple about 70 years later, Never to its former glory of Solomon's temple, but they do the best that they can with what they have. 
But then the temple is destroyed in AD 70. Again, because of their constant disobedience and defiance, except this time it is because they reject the Messiah. That was the final straw. And the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, never to be rebuilt again, never to exist again. There is no longer a temple of God. There is no longer a throne room for the king. Or is there? Was it not rebuilt? So Paul now in our text is continuing with this uh, idea of the church being God's building. And specifically, he says in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, first of all, I want to remind you that all three yous in these two verses are in the plural in the Greek. Paul is talking to all of them collectively. Paul is not saying that each individual Christian is a temple of God. We need to get that clear. That is not to say that the Holy Spirit does not indwell every believer. Yes, he does. Christ indwells every believer. Yes, he does. However, while every believer is a part of the universal church of God, the church does not exist in totality within each believer. Every individual believer is not a church unto himself. It is a false idea. It is bad theology that many Christians believe, which has led to all sorts of problems within the church. The whole idea of the autonomy of the local church, which, by the way, we hold to as Baptists, the autonomy of the local church, that there should be no authority outside of the local church, we are autonomous in that we govern ourselves. That is true. That is biblical. However, the problem is the idea of the autonomy of the local church has become the autonomy of the individual believer. I am a church unto myself, so nobody can tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. The elders can't tell me what to do because wherever I am, the church is. I am the church which means that I can do church anywhere, whether I'm driving in my car, whether I'm sitting in my living room, whether I'm out on the lake on a Sunday morning, where I am, the church is, and I do church. My friends, you cannot do church by yourself. It is unbiblical, it is false, and it is wrong. You cannot do church by yourself. All of these yous are plural. Paul is saying you, collectively, the church in Corinth, the believers in Corinth, the church, Tapestry Community Church in Belton, the believers and the members of part of Tapestry Community Church are collectively the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you all, amongst you all, within you all. 
The New Testament never speaks of temple on an individual level. You realize that? It always, the New Testament always speaks of temple on a, in a corporate sense. In a corporate sense. I'll give you some examples that many of us are probably familiar with. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, there it is right there, Hexen. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, except for the, the word you in verse 19 and your, you and your are in the plural. Your, all of you all, collectively are the body and the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul writes this, So then you are no longer, which by the way, the you throughout what I'm about to read, they're all in the plural. They're all in the plural. So then you all, we could say, you all are no longer strangers and aliens, but you all are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, listen, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you all are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You all, believers, together are the temple of God, and God is building up his temple. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, you is in the plural again. As you all come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you all, it's in the plural as well, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and then to offer spiritual sacrifices where? Within this holy temple, to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter sees every believer not as a temple in himself, but as a stone that is a part of the temple. Each of us are bricks that belong to the temple. And together, we make the temple of God. But how is that possible? In other words, is this simply metaphorical language that Paul is using, right? Is this just illustrative language? Is he just using an illustration to help us sort of understand this spiritual reality? 
though not an actual physical reality. But what's interesting about Ezekiel's vision, remember Ezekiel in chapter 10, he sees this vision of the temple, the temple at the time, and he sees the Spirit of God, the glory of God departing from the temple. What a tragic vision that would have been. But then when you get to chapter 40 of Ezekiel, through to the end of the book, Ezekiel has another vision, a grand vision. And it is the vision of a future temple that he sees. And this future that he sees, it's very interesting for several reasons. First of all, it's perfectly square. The temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a rectangle. It was a rectangle that pointed east. But yet Ezekiel sees a perfectly square temple that is perfectly balanced with all of these rooms around the inner sanctum, the holy place, and the holy of holy place, implying perfection. This is a perfect temple, whatever it is. What is also interesting about Ezekiel's temple is that he sees water a river of water flowing from underneath the temple, from underneath the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, bringing life to the nations. There's no river that flows under the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the temple, sits on a mountain, Mount Zion. There's water that flows in the valleys next to it, the Kidron Valley to the east, the Hinnom Valley to the west. There's water that flows around Jerusalem in those valleys, but there's no river that flows through the middle of the temple or from the center of the temple. And then in chapter 43 of Ezekiel, after he sees this vision of a perfect temple, in chapter 43, he then sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple. The glory of the Lord returns to the temple in Ezekiel's vision. God gives Ezekiel and the people of Israel hope. The question is, when, when does this happen? In all four Gospels, we're told that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and rested upon him. We're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Jesus is God incarnate. The glory of the Lord filled Christ completely and entirely. That's what John says in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was made that has been made. Then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. And then he goes on to say that through Christ was revealed the glory of God. 
we beheld his glory. The glory of the Lord inhabits Christ. Then we're told in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, he goes into the temple. And he becomes irate because they've turned the temple into a flea market. Keep in mind, there is no Old Testament commandment forbidding them from selling goats and sheep and doves and pigeons in the temple. But nonetheless, the temple was considered the dwelling place of God. It was the throne room of their king. Who in their right mind would bring goats and sheep and pigeons and let them poop all over the throne room of their king? So Jesus rightly becomes indignant because they have desecrated this sacred, holy place. This is holy ground. This is the temple of our God. This is the throne room of our king. How dare you treat it like a flea market? And so he drives them out. And then they said to him, well, who gives you the right to do this? And where do you come off running people out of the temple? What sign do you give that you have the right to do this? And Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Of course, they misunderstood what he was meaning. because They said it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But John then adds a commentary and says, later we understood he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple of God. He is the place where God in all of his fullness, the glory of God in all of his fullness dwells in Christ. And then we read in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well, he says, woman, if you knew who you were speaking to, you would have asked me for water and I would have given you living water from which if a person drinks, they will never be thirsty again. Jesus says, I am the source from which eternal living water flows forever. The kind of water that will always satisfy. Jesus is the new perfect temple of Ezekiel's vision. What Ezekiel saw was not a building. What he saw was Christ. What he saw was the Messiah. Jesus is the perfect temple of Ezekiel's vision. This is why, my friends, there is no temple on the new earth. There is no temple in the new Jerusalem. If you don't believe me, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for 
her husband. By the way, the New Jerusalem is not a city. It's not a building. Because he says, adorned as a bride for her husband. Skip down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me, said, and he said, come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Jesus is not going to marry a building. He's not going to marry a city made of concrete and stone. He's going to marry his bride, the people of God, the church, the new Jerusalem adorned as a bride prepared for her husband is the people of God. The new earth. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lamb is the temple of God. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing, listen, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. The river of life that Ezekiel saw flowing from the throne ultimately is a picture of Christ on the new earth. The river of life flows from underneath the throne of Christ who is the temple of God. Okay. So is the temple of God. Jesus is the temple of God. Hopefully I've convinced you of that. But the question still remains, what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? Understand that Paul's temple theology, that is his understanding of the Old Testament temple, his understanding of the significance of the Old Testament, Paul's temple theology was radically transformed on the Damascus Road. Remember that? Acts chapter 9, Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's got warrants for the arrest of Christians. He is stopped by Jesus who says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, rather, why do you persecute me? And of course, his first question is, well, who are you? I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. You know, Paul had to scratch his head and said, wait a minute. I'm not persecuting you. You're dead. We crucified you. From that, Paul came to understand that all believers in union with Christ are the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 13. This is the point that Paul drives home in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption 
through his blood the forgiveness of trespasses. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. Verse 13, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed into the body of Christ with the promised Holy Spirit. Thus, for Paul and for Peter, they both understand that because of our union with Christ, we are in him, we are in union with him, we are the body of Christ, we are the temple of God. Because if Christ is God's temple, and we are all a part of that temple, which is a reality, beloved, we are all a part of that temple, then God's temple exists today. It is real. It is physical. It is tangible. Why? Because God's people are real. They are physical. They are tangible. So the next time someone says, isn't it sad that there's no more temple once it was destroyed, you can say, oh, but there is. The temple still exists. It exists in God's people. So now you know what Paul means in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? When God's people gather for corporate worship, listen, my friends, when God's people gather for corporate worship, when we come together on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, like the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was disassembled when it moved, right? It was there. The glory of God inhabited it. But when the glory was lifted up and the cloud of glory would begin to move, then the people would disassemble the tabernacle and they would follow the cloud of glory by day. They would follow the pillar of fire by night and where it stopped, they would reassemble the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord would inhabit that place once again. Now the Jews understood, they always understood that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. They knew that. They knew that they could pray to God wherever in their home. They could worship God in terms of singing to him wherever. But they also understood that the tabernacle and later Solomon's temple was considered to be by God the designated meeting place on earth between God and his people. It was a celestial embassy upon earth. It was the place where God most powerfully dwelt and spoke to God's people. Like the living stones of 1 Peter chapter 2, like the tabernacle in the Old Testament, when we go our separate ways during the week, yes, God goes with us, but the temple has been disassembled. When we come back together, we reconstitute the temple of God and the glory of God fills this place in a way like never before and nowhere else on planet Earth. 
We rebuild the throne room of our king. We enter into the very throne room of God. We stand in his very presence. This becomes holy ground. Not because of the building. Throughout the rest of the week, it's just a building. But when God's people come together, the temple is reestablished. And the glory of the Lord fills this place. This is why the Lord's Supper, part of the reason the Lord's Supper is so sacred. Because our God and King is with us in this place. And he is supping with us. This is the King's table. This is the King's Supper. And no unbeliever who lives their life in rebellion against the king dare approach the king's table. You will reap the wrath of God for those who dare to approach the king's table when they are living in defiance against his rule and authority. Then Paul writes in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, the Greek word can also mean harm. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Why? For God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. So now Paul describes the third kind of professing Christian that is found within the church. The first is in verse 14. And it is those, who, those whose work is from a heart of faith and for the glory of God. Those individuals will not only be saved and enter onto the new earth, but they will be given an additional reward. What that is, I don't know. It's a surprise gift. We'll all figure it out when we get there. But they will get something in addition. For the good work that they have done for the glory of Christ, for the glory and honor of their king, because their work was done from a heart of faith, and it was done simply to point people to Christ and to say, don't look at me, look at him, look at him. The second kind of Christians he describes is in verse 15, and it is those who are saved, they are believers, they do have faith in Christ, but their work was not solely done or always solely done for the glory of Christ. They often served in ministry, taught Sunday school, served as elders or deacons, taught a life group, volunteered wherever, even shared the gospel with their neighbors for selfish reasons. Because I want, I want others to think well of me. I want people to think I'm I'm serious about my faith. Those individuals will suffer loss. They will realize on the day of judgment that all of their work was in vain because it was for their own glory. But nonetheless, because of their faith, they will receive eternal life. But now, the third are those who would actually cause harm to the church. This is the third type of Christian that we find, professing Christian that we find within the church. Those who would seek to harm it. 
And if anyone destroys God's temple, God, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Three points to take home. Let me just wrap up. Number one, God's temple exists today when believers come together. Know that. This is not just a spiritual truth. This is not just a metaphorical illustration. This is real. The temple is real. It is physical. It is tangible. When God's people come together, the temple is reestablished, and the glory of the Lord fills this place. Number two, in light of that, we should take just as seriously what we do on Sunday mornings as the Jews took when they entered into the temple of God. When the Jews went to the temple of God, that was an enormous event. When the tabernacle was first established and the glory of the Lord filled that place, that was an enormous event. It was more a more significant event than anything they could ever do at any other point during the year. We are going to visit the throne room of our king. And thirdly, like the Levites in the Old Testament, because by the way, we saw that in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are the new priesthood. And one of the responsibilities of the Levites in the Old Testament was to protect the temple of God. That was their job. In fact, they were supposed to encamp around the tabernacle, and then all of the other people encamped around them because their job was to protect and defend the tabernacle. Not because God needed protecting, but we're told specifically so that death would not come to those who approach. As the priest of God, it is our responsibility, it is all of our responsibility to protect the church of God from those who would seek to harm it. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we stand or for many of us, sit here in your presence, in the very throne room of our King, gazing up upon your glory. We thank you, our God and King, for inviting us into your presence. Not because we deserve it, we certainly have not earned it but because you are a gracious, kind, loving, merciful monarch. We worship you. And we thank you for the honor and the privilege of being able to stand in your presence. Father, we pray that this truth would radically transform the way we worship on Sunday mornings. We pray that this truth would radically transform the way in which we view fellow believers of the church and that we would not seek to do harm to the church 
but would seek to do good for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.